Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Brett from Heinemann, and today on the Heinemann Podcast, we continue our special read-aloud podcast with 180 Days authors Kelly Gallagher and Penny Kittle. In part two of this podcast series, the authors share more excerpts from their new book, 180 Days, Two Teachers, and the Quest to Engage and Empower Adolescents. Last week, we heard about their core teaching beliefs and strategies for generating creative and meaningful writing. This week, Kelly and Penny expand on their teaching beliefs, discuss the value of talking talk and share a story about their process of learning to work together. We pick up where we left off last week. We believe writing identity matters. We want our students to live as writers. Writing creates an opportunity to understand life better and to navigate its challenges and opportunities. Writing is for life, not just for school. We feel the pedagogical tension, as defined by Henry Widowson, between approaches to teaching writing that are designed to train for specific tasks, for example, report writing, and those designed to position students to be creative in a world with unpredictable writing tasks. We feel conflicted by how much time we ourselves spend on the necessary, often mind-numbing writing tasks to explain, provide information, or answer emails. We see this experience echoed in our students who must prove that they remember or know something that has been told to them in orderly, complete sentences that can be outlined into paragraphs and turned into coherent essays. Unfortunately, crafting beautiful writing is not important for most writing tasks in school. Functional, clear writing is good enough for tests and assignments. But when this is the only writing our students do, they lose the opportunity to explore the beauty and conflict that is coursing through each of their lives. Teachers are making a critical error when they focus on writing for tasks only. There's another kind of writing altogether. It is the writing we read. It is the writing in memoirs and poetry and commentaries that leave us stunned in the wake of lovely sentences. It is the writing that takes an unlikely rowing team from the University of Washington in the midst of the start of World War II, the boys in the boat, and makes those years so alive we cannot turn away. It is writing that follows a boy from the gritty, dangerous streets of Newark to the campus of Yale in the short and tragic life of Robert Peace. This is writing that reaches inside us, writing that clarifies, refines, and allows us to explore and consider our own lives, our passions, our pasts, our futures. When we see this writing in the work of others, we often find the boldness to try this in our own writing. This writing cannot be drafted once and set aside. These are drafts that invite a second reading, a tenth. This is writing that deserves refinement. When students find this writing, the writing process becomes a living thing. We both write what is difficult, what is only for us, because when we write for ourselves, we learn how to seek ideas and how to find them, how to nurture them, how to question them, how to seek answers to bigger questions. Most of the writing in our notebooks will never be seen by anyone. The endless pondering and recreating of moments we have lived both in our teaching and in our lives outside our classrooms. This writing leads to thinking that makes us better parents, friends, spouses, and teachers. 
This writing helps us forgive people and come to terms with moments from our past. This writing makes us hum inside with the challenge of getting it right and the delight when we almost do. This is the kind of writing that is most meaningful to us, and it's the experience with writing we want for our students. Similarly, we feel the tension brought about by the overemphasis of traditional text types. It's hard to say which type has more power in classrooms today, argument or informational writing. Unfortunately, the literary analysis essay remains front and center in many ELA classrooms. As a result, narrative writing has been marginalized. Students are too often denied the opportunity to write from their own experiences, a paradox since writing what is personally meaningful is where writers invest the most. Curriculum that is narrowly focused on traditional genres stunts the creativity and flexibility we want our students to acquire. When young writers are required to repeatedly write the same essays as their peers, their unique writing identities do not emerge. We believe in the value of talk. Learning is social. When you go to the theater on Friday night to see a complex film, what's the first thing you want to do immediately following the movie? Talk about it. We're both in book clubs with other adults, and we participate in these book clubs because we know that the conversation will deepen our understanding. When either of us hit a roadblock while writing sections of this book, what do we do? We talk through the problem. Talk deepens thinking and learning. Yes, there are moments when we seek deep, reflective silence in our classrooms, but these moments are balanced by the frequent buzz that occurs when students share interesting thinking with each other. As Denny Palmer Wolf writes, listening and speaking have to come back into the heart of the curriculum out from under the dominance of reading and writing. For inquiry to flourish, young people have to grow up in discussion, public speaking, interviewing, debating, and spoken word and oral performance. We agree. And so we work to place talk in the center of our classrooms. Every day across every unit of study in both reading and writing, we plan opportunities for students to one, talk to us, two, talk to one another, three, talk to bigger audiences, and four, to practice listening skills. We believe in the practice of approximation and fearlessness. To grow, writers have to be willing to try things that are new and challenging. They have to learn to accept their own approximations, sometimes even failures, and to try again. Students who write regularly without teacher intervention develop a fearlessness that's necessary for their growth as writers. In the safe space of their writing notebooks, our students are encouraged to experiment. Practice in notebooks is celebrated, but not graded. The notebook's a place to collect ideas, not to perform. We sketch, gather, and notice in order to be more attentive to what we're thinking and understanding. We personalize and demystify writing through daily ungraded invitations. We take risks with form and ideas, and in their notebooks, students generate possibilities for longer pieces of writing. Writing by hand in notebooks helps students see what revision looks like. Those who haven't written regularly often see revision as a move writers make at the end of the writing process. In notebooks, we lead our students to the habit of revising as their writing unfolds, a constant rethinking of the ideas they're trying to communicate well. We model this practice by revising our own emerging drafts in front of our students on the board or under the document camera as we quick write together each day. The collection of quick writing and revising that grows over time in a notebook helps students see the gains they're making in volume and in honing the clarity of their thinking by rereading and tinkering with words. Their writing improves with practice and they can see it. We believe exploration, risk, and failure are essential components in a writer's growth. But when students know their papers will be graded, they stay close to the known and familiar, and as a result, their growth is stunted. 
Grading increases the fear of failure, and an increased fear of failure reduces the willingness to take chances. Why take a risk if the result of that risk might lead to a lower grade? This is why we believe in grading less and assessing more. Assessment and grading are not the same thing. Grading is a finish line evaluation tool. Assessment, on the other hand, is ongoing, something we do every day to inform our instruction. Ongoing daily assessment drives the kind of feedback we give our students. Feedback that has its roots in coaching, not criticism. Grading tells us where our students ended up. But assessment, the key ingredient in responsive teaching, tells us where we're going. We believe collaboration is essential for professional growth. Earlier, we described how it took us four hours to plan the first two days of instruction. Our slow pace was not a result of laziness or our inability to focus. It came from the challenge of aligning our practices with our philosophies. We found we were unable to plan a school year without veering into important philosophical conversations. Kelly gave me some new thinking on grading practices, and I gave Kelly some new thinking on features of the writer's notebook. Kelly shared new thinking on creating thought logs, and I shared new thinking on conferring, and so on. We're mindful that isolation is often listed as one of the reasons so many teachers leave our profession. Even in the busyness of the school day and with hundreds of young people crowding the halls, teaching can be lonely. It isn't the proximity to others that we need. It's the conversations about how we plan for instruction and the risks we're taking in order to engage more students. It's processing the frustrations we all experience in teaching, in grading, in finding a way to inspire the young adults we care so much about. It's sharing the burden of being close to students who've been abandoned or brutalized. In Professional Capital, Andy Hargraves and Michael Fullen suggest that this inherent isolation in teaching can be countered by bringing professional capital to our school sites. This professional capital is made up of three subsets, human capital, accumulating background knowledge in the field and the research to support our beliefs, decision capital, based on what I know, what am I going to do, and social capital, we're smarter together. And when we try to figure things out together, it leads us to practices that move our work forward. We brought a lot of human capital and decision capital into this project. But it was our social capital, the thinking that occurred via ongoing focused collaboration that moved both of us toward new practices and understandings. It would have been a lot easier to remain in our teaching silos, but we recognize there's a significant benefit that arises from interacting with other teachers. Every teacher gets mired in the minutia of his or her school, which is why sometimes the views of others outside our schools helps us see our students and our practices in a new light. These views from outside our respective systems enabled both of us to stay focused on the bigger picture and prevented us from going down unproductive teaching avenues. We had a full year of intellectual conversations, planning lessons together, calibrating our plans in response to student work, and then evaluating the learning occurring in our classrooms. Charles Darwin said, in the long history of humankind and animal kind too, those who learn to collaborate and improvise most effectively have prevailed. We don't know about the word prevailed, but we can say with certainty that our collaboration elevated our teaching. Our curricular conversations always return to these important questions. What do these students understand right now? What do they need next to engage deeply in reading and writing? How do we recover momentum when it lags? The times when we wrestled with something difficult together, like my resistance to moving to a core text at the end of semester one, when I still had so many students who were not regular, habitual readers, were important to both of us. Challenging each other helped us plan, teach, and respond to students with confidence and resilience. We met student resistance with creative energy and strength. 
We cannot count how many times one of our suggestions prompted the other to think, I hadn't thought about it quite like that. We learned from each other. We learned to trust the thinking of each other. We found more joy in our work. And we wish that for every one of you. There is a famous red wedding scene in Game of Thrones where an unexpected massacre occurs. In a flash, violence erupts. No prisoners are taken. The devastation leaves nothing but blood red silence. That scene reminds us of us. Well, specifically, that scene reminds us of a moment that occurred early in the writing of this book. We were just getting started and we were trying to find that delicate balance between our distinctly different voices. We did not want this to be too much of a Penny book and we did not want this to be too much of a Kelly book. We wanted this to be our book, but finding that voice is tricky. Early on, we were still tiptoeing around each other's writing, trying not to inflict pain. Until our Red Wedding Day, Penny had written a passage in her writer's notebook and she was excited to share it with me. She sent it to me along with the following note. It feels like I've hit on something important here that we need to think about. I figured out how to explain something I haven't explained well before. I know I have more to say about this. It's important and clear to me. So I'm kind of jumping up and down in my chair right now. And it's a truly shitty first draft right now. So just try to get the gist of my ideas and please ignore the crap of my writing. Unlike what happened in Game of Thrones, Penny did not die. Somehow she found the strength to overcome the bloodshed of my jumping into pink pen editing when she had asked only for a response to her thinking. We talk about this on one of the videos. We were both reminded that feedback on writing must be given delicately. We have to listen to a writer before we cover their work with corrections. On this day, Penny did not want to work on the writing or even read my corrections because I wasn't listening to her. Fortunately, our writing partnership not only survived, but flourished, and we are thankful it did, for we have written a book we think you will find thought-provoking. My thanks to Kelly Gallagher and Penny Kill for taking the time to share with us this special read-aloud from 180 Days. We wanted to mention the video that accompanies this book. We have a special guided tour hosted by Penny Kittle on the Heinemann blog. Just visit blog.heinemann.com and click on video, and there you can find Penny's tour. If you've missed any other part of our podcast series with Kelly and Penny, be sure to visit Heinemann's podcast archives as well. 180 Days to Teachers in the Quest to Engage and Empower Adolescents is available now from Heinemann.com. You can follow the authors on Twitter. Kelly Gallagher is at Kelly G2Go, and that's T-O, and Penny Kittle is at Penny Kittle. We'd love for you to comment and review on the Heinemann podcast so more educators can discover it. You can also follow Heinemann on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and all of our various Facebook groups. Plus, you can get a daily teacher tip right on your phone directly from Heinemann authors by downloading the Heinemann Teacher Tip app. All this and more on Heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.